Well, welcome. We're so glad you're here for what's been a great day of celebration. And I do want to welcome particularly our visitors this morning. Uh, in the back of your bulletin, you'll find a, a whole section on community groups. And if you're one of our visitors, uh, our values in here, but I just want to just give you a real clear conviction we have. Uh, we really believe that no one lives well spiritually who lives alone spiritually. No one lives well spiritually who lives alone spiritually. So we work and continue to work to create environments where you can enjoy all that happens in this big room but then move into deeper community, which is so critical to your spiritual life and to your relationships. So we encourage you to do that. If you have your Bibles, turn to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32. We're going to start with verse 41. As we look at grace, the unrestrained heart of God. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 41. In this passage, there's a phrase in this passage that has just been with me throughout preparing myself for Easter, preparing this teaching for Easter, just over and over again, I keep coming back to this phrase. God says, I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. Just think about that phrase for a moment. God, the God of the universe, creator, sustainer, the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ says, I'm going to do this with all my heart and all my soul. It just begins to cause me to imagine what does it look like when God with an unrestrained heart just makes himself about what he's doing. Now, I need some data points because this is such a big concept. So I kind of start by thinking, okay, what are some examples I've encountered of people who I've experienced or seen do something that felt like with their whole whole heart and soul? So the first one that came to mind was I lived in Chicago for 12 years. And this is the first one that comes to my mind. We click in there, guys. There we go. Back. Michael Jordan. Now, I came to, to uh, Chicago his rookie year. I left the year after he retired the second time. I've kind of always felt like our, our careers have been on a parallel path of some sort, <laughs> give or take $250 million. I think it's been kind of real similar. My, I mean, I was such an avid Bulls fan during those years. My daughter's first three words were daddy, mama, and Michael. And this is true. The third word was Michael. We watched many a Bulls game with her falling asleep in my lap. Just the intensity, just the, just absolutely unrestrained, unabandoned intensity with which he played the game and willed the game to win. And I I love sports, I love music. So I thought of this person, Jennifer Nettles of Sugarland. Now, whether you like classical, uh, rock, whatever kind of music you like, whether or not you don't like country, it doesn't matter. Jennifer Nettles, when you watch her perform and sing her songs or her videos, it feels like every fiber, every cell of her being is feeling whatever emotion she's seen. And, and, and like all great musical artists of any genre, like all great artists, it just stirs your emotion. You can't help but be affected by whether she's celebrating, whether she's sad, whatever she's singing. And then the last one, probably the more, and obviously the more meaningful one, I, I thought of this man. Who, when, he, when he gave this speech, I have a dream speech, literally, every time I hear it, I can feel chills. I mean, the personal power of this man to be the public voice and face of a nonviolent re- civil rights revolution. I asked my wife the other day, I said, how tall do you think Martin Luther King Jr. was? She said, I don't know, 6'2", try 5'7". I mean, you, the stature of this man, physically, it just wasn't like he walked in the room, was physically imposing. He was 5'7 and slightly built, but the stature of him as a leader towered over millions. And so I look at these and I think, man, that's, that's what it looks like. And then I thought of this. Do you know why I think I'm so captured by this? 
by anyone who lives so wholehearted in whatever they do is because we spend our lives around people who are half-hearted at best or quarter-hearted or tenth-hearted. We don't have much experience with someone doing something wholehearted and, and many times when they do one thing wholehearted, the rest of their life's a mess. But God does everything wholehearted. Everything unrestrained. Every part of, there is nothing holding back who God is. And in Jeremiah 32, 41, he speaks of an unrestrained grace. An unrestrained grace. A, a heart to give, him, give his whole self to grace. So we're going to spend this, this morning exploring more. What does that unrestrained heart of grace look like in God? And what's the impact on our lives? So have your Bibles. In order to get back to Jeremiah, we've got to have backstory. We've got to understand what gets us to the book of Jeremiah to understand the story. So turn to Genesis chapter 15, verse 17. Genesis chapter 15, verse When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now, when you go home afterwards and see someone else later and say, what did your pastor talk about church? A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Very inspiring Easter service. Well, you'll be surprised. Uh, Genesis 15 is one of the most important passages, chapters in all of Scripture for us understanding salvation and grace and God's love for us. So let me give you some background on what's happening in this passage. First of all, in Genesis chapter 15, it begins with two promises from God. The first promise to Abraham, his name is Abram at this point. He'll later be called Abraham. I'm going to use Abraham. That's more recognizable. First promise to Abraham is this. One, I'm going to give you a son who will be an heir to you, who will carry on your lineage, which is pretty laughable at this point because Abraham is 85 and his wife is 75. But God says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to supply him. Second thing God says, when you have that son, he's, and he has, he has Abraham look at the stars in the sky. He says, if you can count the stars in the sky, then you'll be able to count your descendants through that son. And God is speaking physically, and he's also speaking spiritually, because through Abraham he will call a people to himself that will be his children. So God says to him, I have two promises. A son, even though you're 85, it looks impossible. I'm going to do this and descendants beyond the stars in the sky, which seems impossible to Abraham. But verse 6 says that Abraham believed God, and God credited it to him as righteous, righteousness. Now, that passage will become a basis for what Paul will teach in the New Testament and the entire Protestant Reformation. But we're going to move past that now to see what happens after. Abraham believes that God will do what he's promised. If you have your Bibles, we're not going to put this up on the screen. Most of our passages will be on the screen today. But Genesis chapter 15, we're going to look at verse 7. And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. God identifies himself as the Lord. In this, in this passage, his name is Yahweh. It is God's what we call covenantal name. It is his name that, by which he says, I am making you my people. It is a name of sovereignty. It is a name of absolute holiness. It is a name that sets God above all. He says, I, Yahweh, have called you to this place. Well, then, and uh, Abraham's response is this. But Abraham said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? 
Now, when he responds to God, he says, how am I going to know this? This, this looks impossible for me that I'm going to possess this land, that you're going to keep these promises. None of this can make any sense to me. It would seem like Abraham in verse 6 believes, and by verse 8 he doesn't believe anymore, but that's not true. Because what Abraham is saying is, I know, but can you help me out here? Because it's really hard for me to hold on to this. I know, but i got to know, how are we going to, how am I going to do this? How am I going to possess this land? How am I going to have these descendants? I know, but help me believe and really know. And we know, part of how we know that this is Abraham's heart is the words he uses. He says, Lord God, literally, Adonai, Yahweh. The word Adonai is for father or Lord. Uh, it was used in the more common languages like a master owner, someone who, who had control of all things. But it's used in covenantal language for him to say, my father, my Lord. And when it's put with Yahweh, it magnifies. And what he's saying is, my Lord Yahweh, my Father Yahweh, my Father who owns all things. I know who you are. I believe you can do this. But can you help me know that this is going to happen and how this is going to happen? And so God responds to him in in, uh, verse 8. Excuse me, verse 9. And God said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Now the significance of three years old is three-year-olds for the heifer and the goat and the ram were a marker of strength and maturity. A three-year-old is like at the ultimate strength, the ultimate, it's got a lot of life ahead, but it's already mature. It's the most valuable time in the life of these possessions. Verse 10, and Abraham brought, brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Now what Abraham does is he takes the ram, the heifer, and the goat, cuts them and lays them so that they're side by side half like a, like a little lane. And the reason he does this is because it is a covenantal practice of his culture. Now, you know, in, in our culture, when you make a contract, if you go to the bank and you're going to, you're going to take out a loan. You have all these papers that you fill out, and you have your signature, and then there's a seal, and it's notarized, and all those things make the contract unvoidable. It's, it's, it's complete. But in this culture, you don't have written contracts and these kinds of seals. What you have are covenants. When you want to make an irrevocable covenant, they would take these animals, they would sacrifice them, open them up, and then the two parties would take hands and walk through the animals, through the dead sacrifice. And they would hold hands together, and by doing so, they would say, I'm covenanting with you, you're covenanting with me. Nothing can break this, nothing can change this. This is irrevocable. And some even suggest that the reason they walked through the dead separated animals was to say that may this be done to me if I break this covenant. And that's how strong the covenant commitment was made. And we have, uh, even as late as Alexander the Great, as late as the life of Alexander the Great, we have cultural examples of this kind of, this kind of covenant keeping. Now, in verses 11 through 16, Abraham will fall asleep, and God will give him a picture that his descendants will endure some suffering and enslavement down the road. This is the, what we will see later in Exodus as the Egyptian enslavement. But he says, I will deliver them. And then that finally gets us back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 17, where we see this. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, it had been a long time, Behold, a smoke, smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between these pieces. Now, here's the significance of this. The way a covenant is made is both parties walk through, and Abraham was not asked to walk through. The smoking pot 
and the lit torch are symbols, without going into all the details, they are symbols of God's presence and his deliverance. What God said to Abraham, Abraham, here's how you know these promises will be kept. It's not on you to do this. It's not about what you can do. I am the one who will make this happen. I will make you to have a son, Isaac. I will make you to have these descendants. I will lead the people into the land, and it will be on me to fulfill the promises that I have made. It is a unilateral covenant. In other words, only one person has made the commitment, and it is God, and God has put it on himself, and he has taken the divine and the human part on himself to walk through these animals. And he comes and says, I will provide out of my resources and I will fulfill what I've started. The impact of this is Abraham really knows this is going to happen. He knows and he can be confident that God will fulfill his promises because God has made the commitment himself to be the provider. This impact on Abraham is so strong that 30 years later when it's put to the test... He will exhibit absolute confidence in God. Have, if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 22, verses 5 through 8. Genesis chapter 22, we'll start with verse 5. If you had any, if you've been in Sunday school, you've had any association with the church whatsoever, maybe even not, you're going to know this story where God says to Abraham, here's your son, here's your heir I've given you. Now what I want you to do is take a three-day journey and then go sacrifice him on an altar. Well, for Abraham, this goes against everything, everything that he believes that God has said. And not only that, it goes completely against the character of God. The most detestable, abominable thing that God hated more than anything throughout the Old Testament is when he would run into a people who would sacrifice children. God hated child sacrifice. And yet he has said this to Abraham. What's Abraham going to do with this? Well, turn to verse 5 and I'll show you. Then Abraham said to his young men, they'd gotten there after three days' journey, Stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now the English doesn't do this justice. What this says is, I and the boy will go worship and we will come back. Abraham is so confident in who God is and his provision that he decided that whatever is going to happen there, God's going to keep his promise. Hebrews 11 says that Abraham was so confident that he believed even if he had to sacrifice Isaac, God would raise him back from the dead because God would keep his promise. Then in verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Can you imagine this? He's putting the wood on the back of Isaac. And Abraham took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they went, both of them together, verse 7. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father! And he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And I'm going to tell you, if that was my son, one of my sons, and I'm walking up there, I would have been panicked. I would have said, It's okay, I'm going to take care of it. I've been looking everywhere I could. What's the out? How, maybe there's something over in the bush somewhere. I can find a bush or something. I can find a, 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 something I can sacrifice. I've got, to pre- I've got to provide. I've got to prepare some kind of way because there's no way I'm going to take my son and sacrifice him on this altar. God could not be asking me to do this. But look at Abraham's response in verse 8. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went up together. 
Abraham's response, God will provide. He's asked for a lamb for an offering. He will provide it because it's what Abraham remembers is it's not up to Abraham. It's God who will keep the commitment. And God will deliver. In verse 14, Abraham will name this place the place where God provided. And God will continue to supply and continue to provide. He will provide for Abraham's descendants when they're enslaved in Egypt. When the tenth plague is coming. Remember the ten plagues? The tenth plague is coming, which is the death of the firstborn son. God says to Abraham's descendants who are enslaved because of their own rebellion, He says to them, you take a lamb and you sacrifice the lamb, you put the blood over the doorpost, and when the blood over the doorpost is seen by the death angel, the death angel will pass over your house, and your son will not have to die. That's where we get the Hebrew Jewish Passover, and Easter is tied directly to that Passover. And this will go on for generations, with the people wander in the desert. If you've been here in our teaching in the Hebrews series, we've been looking at how God provided manna, food in the desert. That was That was God providing again. God always takes it on himself to provide. Now generations pass. God takes the people into the promised land that he had promised Abraham and his descendants. And the people go there and God gives them incredible prosperity and wealth and they turn on him. They turn on God. They make their prosperity and their wealth about them. They become greedy and oppressive of the poor, of widows and orphans. They become sexually perverse in every manner of moral corruption possible. And yes, they even begin sacrificing their children to idols. And God constantly presses in with the prophets, calls them back, offers the priests to offer sacrifices to bring them back. And he does this for generation after generation. And finally, in Jeremiah, he makes one last plea. And you don't need to turn there. I'm just going to do this part, and then we'll go to Jeremiah 32. God makes one last plea. He thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth for in these things I I delight says the Lord Yahweh God says he delights in offering himself and his love and his justice and his righteousness don't make this about you he says to them make this about me and I will pour out on you all manner I will provide all you need and they will not do it They will not trust him as Father God. They will not look to him for what he provides. And every time he blesses them, they will turn that into an idol. And ultimately, as a result of that, as God tells them, they will be wiped away by the Babylonian sword. They will experience famine. They will experience disease. And they will be utterly destroyed. And yet, to this utterly destroyed people, he will keep his promise. And that's what takes us back to Jeremiah 32. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Jeremiah chapter 32, where God, after he says to them, you will be destroyed by the Babylonians. And he's speaking to Judah, who's already watched Israel be destroyed because of their rebellion, but who refuses to repent and return to God. And yet this is what God says to them. He says in verse 37 that he will bring them to dwell in safety. Let's put that up on the screen. And then in verse 38... And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart 
and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. When you hear the word fear in the Old Testament, it's a reverent, absolute dependence on God. He's saying they will give their entire allegiance and heart to me and it will be to my delight and to their good. Verse 40, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. And I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant this, them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. And God says, I will rejoice in doing them good. Now, if these were great followers of his, this would make sense. If these were people who were, yeah, they just kind of struggle, but they're trying hard. Maybe we can make a little sense out of this. These were absolute, perverse, corrupt, rebellious generation after generation people who did not want to trust him. And yet he says, I will rejoice in doing them good. Father God. You know, um, a lot of you know, the Venn Fellowship, you know, I coach and I'm real involved with my kids. And I love sports and I love competition. But my favorite thing in the world is cheering on my kids, whatever they do. I just love being a part of watching them go and work hard and give their whole selves to whatever they're doing. And, and so I'm a shameless fan. I'm just going to tell you, I'm a shameless fan. And, and I'm very emotionally engaged and excited. And a couple of years ago, we were at Smoky Mountain Swim Meet, which is a large gathering of swimmers from all over this region. And one of my sons was in the, in the key event that if they won, would put them and propel them into the championship of the whole event. And the Maryville newspaper caught a picture of me at that event, that moment. <laughs> now, I want to point out that uh, at the time, those shorts were styling, okay? <laughs> that was a fashion statement, not a fashion question, okay? That was, that was the moment. But this is the moment of triumph. That's my wife there. That's my daughter there. But there is me. I am, I am absolutely, absolutely rejoicing and celebrating over my son. And this is what God says. I intend to do this. I intend to give them of myself and to rejoice over them. But something had to be done. Because sin with a just God, cannot just be overlooked. The debt of their sin had caused them to be distant from God, and their corruption meant they could not have a relationship with Him, and something had to be done. So before God could do this and rejoice over them, He had to do this. If you want to see the unrestrained heart of God's grace, there it is. And it goes back to Genesis 15, where he said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to pay the debt. I'm going to do what's necessary, Abraham, to call a people unto myself that I can rejoice over. And when John the Baptist saw Jesus for the first time, he said this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Abraham, you don't have to sacrifice Isaac. I'm providing a lamb. That was Jesus. Enslaved Hebrew people, you don't have to use your firstborn son. I will do that. The Passover lamb. That was Jesus. Everything is pointing to Jesus. 
everything from the moment you see God walk. When God says, I am going to do this, he's saying, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are going to make the sacrifice necessary. This is the unrestrained grace of God, and it is wholehearted, it is immeasurable, and it's unrestrained. The Apostle Paul, in trying to describe this, wrote this. You don't need to turn there. It's in Ephesians, but I'm going to read it to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That word with there is not only with like given to, it means in turn, it's given in, it's absorbed, it's belonging to us. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. It was not in Genesis 15, it wasn't in Genesis 1 that God decided that he would make the sacrifice. That's just where he's starting to tell the story. God chose before the foundation of the world those who would be his children to give them the grace of paying the debt for their corruption. And he would do this so that we could be holy and blameless before him because it is impossible. And yet he will provide In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. His motive, love for his glory. Love for us for his glory and grace. And then... In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This word redemption is the word for someone who is enslaved, entrapped, imprisoned, has no hope, no resources, no way out. It emphasizes helplessness and hopelessness. And it's in Christ that reaching into our helplessness and hopelessness, God said, I will do this. It's on me to pay the price to forgive our sins according to the riches of His grace. The measure of grace that's been given to you is not based on your sin. It's based on Christ. And it's immeasurable. John Stott said, Grace is God's free and unmerited favor, loving the unlovable, seeking the fugitive, rescuing the hopeless, and lifting the beggar from the dunghill to make him sit among princes. This is our story. For those who belong to Christ, that he reached into our corruption. Even though we resisted him, he reached in and kept his promise of grace, an unrestrained grace. You know, I have no uh, right nor interest in being critical of Tiger Woods' handling of the media. I have no idea what it would be like to be the, the face of the world worth billion gazillion dollars and then have this private reality come out into the open. How do you handle that right? I, don't, I, don't, I have no criticism of how he handles the media. I, I'm not smart enough to figure out what to do. But when he finally did come out and share himself, he said, uh, I made mistakes, I committed transgressions. And his, response, his answer was, I'm going to return to my Buddhism and my meditation to get this straightened out. And what he says basically in that is, I'm going to go after this sexual problem I have the way I go after my golf game, with greater discipline, with greater focus, with greater preparation, and with achieving and success. And I'm going to be as driven and as as successful in this area as I was with my golf. And on one hand, I applaud the commitment, but on the other hand, I want to say, but Tiger, you missed the reality. 
It's not about achieving and succeeding and being more disciplined and getting it right. It's not just a mistake or a transgression. It's a sin against a holy God. And what you did to Jesus is much worse than what you did to your wife. And there's only one way, and that's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Tyre Woods is doing what I think a lot of people, particularly in Southern Christianity, if you've grown up in Southern Christianity, do, and it's apply what I call the starfish principle to dealing with sin. Uh, you may not, I don't know if you know what a, much about a starfish, but if you take a starfish and you cut it in half, you got two starfishes because it regenerates. If you cut a starfish into four pieces, you have four starfish. So this group in Australia who did not obviously know these things about starfishes found their, that starfish were eating their coral. Starfish had attacked the coral reef in their Australian city, and this was, I mean, it was a beautiful coral. It was an ecological necessity. It was where the tourists came to see. They had to fix it. So they got this idea of getting all their scuba gear on, getting their machetes and their butcher knives and everything they could find, and they went starfish hunting. And they took all these machetes, and they hacked the starfish to pieces and then high-fived each other for about a week until they realized they had quadrupled the number of starfish on their coral reef. Sin is when we play God. And if you try to be God of your sin, you have just multiplied your sin. You see, we have been given Christ according to the riches of his grace. And Paul writes, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. That word lavish means to give beyond expectation, beyond imagination, beyond any measure. Lavish is when you're given beyond anything anyone could have ever conceived of. Grace has been lavished on us in Christ beyond any conception. And so we come to Easter with an empty cross that tells us this. That not only did God have the will and the heart to save us, He had the power and the strength to keep His promise and to accomplish it. And that is our story. It is not a story here of a bunch of people gathered together who are really good people, who dress nice on Easter, who really are very nice southern people. That is not the story. Our story is we were lost and without hope, and he gave us redemption. We were in darkness and despair, and some of us were in the despair of southern religious legalism. And he came in and rescued us and said, it's not about you, it's about my grace. This is on me. This is on the cross. And we wanted to share with you this morning just one of those stories, just one of thousands of people who are part of this church who can tell the story of God reaching into their lives and providing grace and salvation. Let's give praise to our Christ for his glorious riches. Been a lot of wonderful moments this morning for me in our three services. One of my favorites was uh, Jeff's parents came in town. He didn't tell them about the video, and so afterwards, uh, his mom came over and kissed me on the cheek. And I knew that really wasn't for me. That was for Christ. That was her, a mother's heart, expressing thanksgiving of the grace of Christ in her son's life. And then Jeff came over, his little five-year-old girl, and she said, "My name's Emery, and I'm five years old." And uh, <laughs> 
just the life that is theirs in Christ, Natalie and his three kids, it's grace. It's just grace. And it's what we celebrate. Uh, John, in, in the Gospel of John, John 1, 16, put that on the board. Um, he had this to say. And from his fullness, he was speaking of Christ. Remember, John spent a lot of time with Jesus. He said, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And the imagery there is like being at the ocean and at the beach, and the waves just keep coming and coming and coming. And for those of us who know our Lord Jesus, we know that there is wave upon wave on the shore of our life of his grace. And we are confident, as Paul said, that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus because we know what he has done. And we deeply long for each of you to know that. And if God stirs in your heart a desire to know him, we would love to pray with you after the service or talk with you. Or maybe it's just you're going to come back next week and just keep walking with us for a while and see what, what he has to say to you about who he is. But we know the Spirit of God only can draw you to that place, so we're praying that he will. Because what we'd love for you to do is to join us in our journey, which is the journey of not only experiencing an unrestrained heart of God, but growing in our own unrestrained hearts. Because this is where we're headed, by the way. Revelation says this is our, our entry point into heaven. Thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This Lamb, this unrestrained heart of God's grace, will receive our worship for eternity, and then we're going to reign with Him for eternity because we're not just supposed to sit there and sing. We're supposed to participate with Him in His unrestrained heart. That's what's ahead for all of us. So what we thought we would do this morning is just have a little rehearsal as we close out, a rehearsal for what's coming. So if you'll stand with me, we're going to say just the part that's in the quotation mark, and then we're going to celebrate this lamb, this unrestrained heart of God. If you'll say this with me, please. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing.